so you feel a little bit far away today. It's kind of big empty spaces in the front. Um, do let me know if you can't hear at the back and I'll do my best. How is it in the back? So far, so good. <clears throat> So before I, um, I go into the theme um, for this afternoon, I just um, I feel like uh, it's important to, to acknowledge the uh, kind of intensity of, of the last hours. Um, you know, the, the wedding last night with, with the, the, the noise and the lights and India kind of making its, uh, its presence felt in, in this meditation. Um, space and uh, and obviously of course also um, Asa breaking her arm and, and how that's kind of had an effect I, I feel on on the space and on many of us so to, just to acknowledge that um, as as part of this this retreat part of this time and this exploration that we're we're sharing and um, I was remembering, when I was reflecting on this, I was remembering um, one of the first retreats uh, I did um, where um, someone almost drowned. It was on the, on the banks of the river Gan Ganges, and someone almost drowned um, at some point in the middle of the retreat. And, um, of course, this was a very um, strong experience for him and also for a lot of the retreatants who had actually seen it happening. And as he was going through the, you know, the aftermath of that experience, um, I remember one of the retreatants coming up to me uh, and saying to me, oh, the retreat is over. It's over. He was Israeli. That's why he said it that way. <laughs> Being an Israeli, I can say that. Yes, very Israeli way. Um, and I remember looking at him, and I don't remember if I, if I articulated it or not, but I had this really strong sense inside of like, no, it's not. You know, no, it's not. You know, yeah, this is a really shaking event, but retreat, practice, meditation, um, it, can, it can contain this, it can grow around it, and this can, can be a part of the retreat rather than something that um, stops it, brings it to, to an end in some way. And obviously, you know, this is... A different, a different thing that happened here, but um, it, it has an effect. And so can we acknowledge that effect and include it in our process and our practice? Yeah, in our, pro in, in our, our process and our practices. You know, there were very clear kind of gestures of that today, you know, just people coming up and saying um, goodbye or showing their support in a, in a very gentle, silent way or from a distance. So yeah, I just wanted to, to include that and acknowledge it. So the theme for, for the talk today, and I'm not sure if it's exactly the same theme that Christopher had yesterday, or if I've made a variation on it, um, but it's not going to be the same talk, I'm pretty sure. Um, so the theme is love and the middle way, love and the middle way. And it does, at least um, for me, very much follow on from, from Christopher's teaching yesterday and um, also from the kind of a lot of our um, exploration so far, the, the, the thread of the teaching so far. And so I wanted to, to start with um, kind of re-saying something <laughs> that I said uh, two days ago. Um, and I'm actually going to read it so that it's more or less the same as, as what I said two, two days ago. It won't be exactly. But in the talk, the previous talk, I said that um, this really strong sense that we can get that if everything that I perceive, if everything that I perceive is impacted by the mind, if everything that I perceive is impacted by the mind, isn't it worthwhile to spend time 
calming the mind? Isn't it worthwhile to spend time understanding the mind? Isn't it worthwhile to spend time increasing the flexibility and pliability of the mind? And isn't it worthwhile to cultivate ways of looking that increase well-being and decrease suffering for ourselves and others? So it was kind of a, I think it's kind of a rhetorical question, but you can keep it as an open question if you like. And I'd like to explore a little bit more today um, both this involvement that the mind has in the shaping of our experience, the involvement that the mind has in the shaping of our experience, and also how we can use this involvement, how we can use this involvement to increase the welfare of this being and all beings, how we can use this involvement of the shaping of perception. So, so far, we were using the word mind, and I'd like to bring in the, the Pali word, which is citta, which is translated as heart-mind, heart-mind. And it's a really beautiful word because it feels like it actually has a much more whole sense of this aspect of our being that um, knows experience, yeah? that um, perceives, that um, recognizes, that interprets. And so when we look at experience, as we've been doing, as we've been, as we've been exploring here together, when we look at experience, we see that what we perceive and how we perceive it is dependent on the state of the citta, on the state of the heart-mind. Yeah? If the citta, if the heart-mind is um, feeling spacious and calm, you must have had at least one or two moments of that over the three and something days we've been here. I think we're on day four. Everything's slightly foggy today. I think we're on day four. So when the state of the citta is calm, is spacious, then we experience things, we perceive things as less sticky. Yeah, they stick to us less. We get hooked by them less and less problematic, right? Is that your experience or just mine? <laughs> yeah. And when the citta is in a, the state of the citta is um, more confused or more restless or more anxious, then we experience things as what I would call more sticky. We get hooked by them more and they're more problematic. Yeah, they're more problematic. So what happens? So here's the state of the, of the cheetah, and it's conditioned, right? So we don't have um, control over it necessarily, at least not absolute control. Even if you're a you know, dictator like me. <laughs> You don't have complete control. We don't have complete control over the state of our citta. What we can cultivate is awareness of the state of the citta. Knowing, ah, the state of the citta is. When we know, when we recognize, when we're aware what the state of the citta is, that we have more possibilities. Because of that awareness, we have more possibilities. So we're more conscious, another way of saying it, we're more conscious of what is happening. So for example, as I just said, you know, today there's some fogginess in the mind. Yeah, the state of the citta is foggy. It's, you know, there's physical tiredness that creates fogginess. And 
it's very clear, you know, recognized it first thing this morning. Yeah? That's the state of the citta. What do I know? If this is the state of the citta, if I'm aware this is the state of the citta, I know that I will be more, there's more likelihood of um, certain things like um, irritability. Yeah? More likely to arise. Making mistakes. Yeah? More likely to happen with this state of, of, of citta. Tired, foggy. So I know what the state of the citta is, and I know where that can lead. Yeah? I know that based on past experience. I then have the possibility, I have the possibility to then prioritize wholesome attitudes that I have been cultivating in my practice for many years now. I can prioritize them. So attitudes like generosity, like patience, like kindness. I can say, okay, this day, it needs more of that, even more of that. Prioritize that. Can I look at my experience, not just through the fogginess of the citta, the foggy tiredness citta, but can I also bring in, lean back into these other qualities of citta that I've been cultivating and bring them in as well. So that, you know, I bring that in intentionally and then even when I get triggered, yeah, I get irritated or I make a mistake, yeah, or I find the day kind of passing by in a blur of something. (laughs) It happens sometimes. Even when I see my own imperfections, I can meet them with a sense of the bigger picture. So I can hold a bigger view. Instead of the identification, oh, I made a mistake. You know, that's a problem. It's my fault. It's, you know, there I go again, spiraling off into that. I can hold a bigger picture of, okay, tiredness is here. Fogginess of mind is here. It's natural that mistakes happen. Yeah? It's even natural for some irritability to arise. Not a big deal. Not taking it personally. It's another way of saying it. Not taking it personally, because we can see the conditions. We can see the conditions. I don't need to take it personally. And even when I do take it personally, I can still then not take that personally. Yeah? We always have, we always have that possibility. No matter how far in to the spiral we've gone. So more equanimity, more space, more kind of um, perspective on the experience. So this is... Um, you know, one of the benefits of the practices we've been, we've been doing here, you know, of the, of, the, of the seeing clearly, of the insight, of the wisdom, to recognize this is the state of, this, of the citta, this is where it could lead. And then the appropriate response. What do I prioritize? What do I prioritize? And it's, it's also the ben- a benefit of um, cultivation practices like metta that we kind of started exploring yesterday. Cultivation practices like metta, where we, we train the mind to be uh, more spacious. We train the mind to be more welcoming and more open to experience, whether we, we like it or not. Yeah? So it's not limited to what we like and what we don't like. So it says in my notes, I should give an example. <laughs> I may have already given a few. One of the, one of the wonderful things about being in this, in this specific um, cheetah state is that the, the past disappears very quickly. <laughs> it's like, I don't really remember what I said three minutes ago, which is incredibly pleasant, by the way, um, if you have my kind of mind, which holds on to 
memory. Um, so and one example from, from my recent experience is that pretty much from the beginning of this, of this year, I've had this really strong intention to um, not get caught up in, in aversion, an aversive mind state. And I have, I have a pretty aversive mind. So I've really had this intention of not getting caught up in aversion. So when I see aversion arising in the mind towards you know, something, someone, myself, it's, like a, it's become like an a invitation to practice. You know, so aversion arises and it's like, okay, feel the aversion, feel the contraction and relax. Yeah, so we can, we can even do this very um, focused kind of or intentional practice of an aversive state of the citta brings the intention to practice and then to bring in spaciousness and openness. And it can be, it's pretty incredible how effective it can be. Yeah? So aversion arises, you know, to something, someone being late or, um, something, <laughs> not doing what I think they should be doing or whatever is going on, aversion arises. And then instead of getting caught up in that, what Nathan calls the papancha train, the kind of ongoing um, escalation of the papancha and the aversion, there's just that, ah. And then bringing in that intention to relax, feeling the contraction, and relaxing it, feeling the aversion and bringing in the metta. Not, as a, not necessarily as a formal practice as we did last night, but just as that intention or that attitude. And 99% of the time this works, it's incredible. And the amount of energy, I was boasting to Christopher the other day, the amount of energy that's released and becomes available by not being caught up in aversion is, um, is pretty amazing. So we can do that, you know, we can have that intentionality. Another um, thing that I've been playing with now, this is I think more than a year, um, is, is states of tiredness, you know, which are physical, it's a physical thing, but it also affects the cheetah. And there's also a lot of reactivity to tiredness. It's unpleasant, so we react to it. So it creates also a mind state, a cheetah state. And so, Seeing how the awareness contracts, the mind contracts, the chitta contracts, the body contracts because there's tiredness and I don't like it. And then actually asking the question, well, how can I bring energy? How can I bring energy? Without necessarily going to sleep. Yeah? In meditation, in... Mostly in meditation, actually. But also in other ways. Bringing interest, bringing energy in. So I want to go more into uh, the benefits of, of the cultivation practices, and I'm just going to go with metta, because I'm just going to use that as, as the example through this. So as we practice metta, uh, particularly towards others, but also towards ourselves, we can see moment to moment as we do the practices how the state of the citta changes. It changes through the meditation. Often it just changes because of the ups and downs of our being. You know, Christopher said the other day, um, Sometimes we have certain patterns. We have more energy at the beginning of the sitting or at the end of the sitting or at the middle of the sitting. So the state of the citta might also change according to those energy patterns. Yeah? It might change because there's more noise or less noise. Yeah? It might change because there's pain in the body or there isn't. So there's, the state of the citta changes because it's conditioned. And that... is something that we can see very clearly as we're working with the metta practice of sending metta to, to, to someone, ourselves or another. 
And so we can see how variable, how changeable the perception of another can be, or of ourselves. I'll just concentrate on the other to make it simple. We can see, okay, the state of the citta changes, and my perception of the other changes with it. Changes with it. So again, I'll, I'll give a specific um, example. If the metta is strong, yeah, the state of the citta is, say, calm, open, relaxed, so that the metta is strong within me, you know, the, the flow of the metta is strong, there'll be a sense that the other is closer, like there's a, a, a deeper or a stronger bond, even if we're working with someone who we don't know, a neutral person, which we haven't really done yet. Yeah, there'll be a sense of closeness, of intimacy. When the metta is less strong, I said maybe there's pain in the body, maybe there's noise coming in and disturbing. There'll be a sense of more distance, less bond, less closeness, less sense of intimacy. So that shaping of perception through the state of the mind can really become obvious through this practice. And if you are intrigued by this practice or you find it beneficial or interesting, then you can, you can watch this particular aspect of it. It's where it's clearly also an insight practice, what I'm just describing, yeah? The cultivation practice and an insight practice. So, When we look at the relationship to the other, both through the formal practice in the metta and in daily life situations, we can see that our conditioning and our past experiences, yeah, our conditioning and past experiences affect, shape how we assess, label, or what we attribute to the other. Yeah? It's not objective. Not objective. And the closer we look, the more we can see this, the more clearly we can see this. So our conditioning plays a part. Our past experiences play a part. And another thing that plays a part is the tendency we have, which is very understandable, but the tendency we have to categorize others depending on whether we feel, or the self feels, it has benefited from the relationship to them or been harmed, or neither. Does that make sense? So if we perceive somebody, if we see someone as having benefited us, that will affect what we think, who, who we think they are, and what we think they're like. Yeah? And if we think they've caused us harm, same thing. It will affect how we perceive them. And both of these aspects are very understandable. Yeah, they're very understandable, very natural. But when we really observe it, we can see that we give them a little too much weight. A little too much weight in how we then um, conclude, the conclusions we reach about somebody, who they are, what their attributes are. And when we acknowledge that, when we acknowledge this, so we see it through our reflection, through our insight practices, through the calming of the mind, through the intentional cultivation practices, we see this, and when we see this, it opens up more possibility from compassion and metta and equanimity. Opens up more possibility, more space to look with compassion and with metta at ourselves and at others.
so we can take it even further. I'm really aware that <laughs> I'm giving quite a complex talk for a, a foggy cheetah day. So uh, apologies to your cheetah from mine. <laughs> and um, I'm hoping that you're enjoying the ride. <laughs> so we can take this even further. We can take this even further. We can see again and again in our experience, both in formal practice and in our relationships with each other, and see again and again that the other is not separate from my perception of them. Yeah? So the other is not separate from perception, from the state of my chitta, from what I prioritize in my life, from my conditioning, from my past experience. All these things come in. So the other is not separate. I know them. My only way of knowing the other is through the mind. And that, the mind, the chitta, is always colored. Yeah, it's always colored by conditions. When we recognize this, it's kind of um, a further invitation to play to play with the pliability, with the flexibility, with the malleability of perception. To play with that, you know, and I really kind of am getting this image of, you know, like being a child playing with um, making mud cakes, you know, like really getting in there, really getting in there. Not afraid to get messy. Don't, don't be afraid to get messy in this. So in this possibility to experiment with perception, with the pliability and malleability of perception, we can practice even more this choice to see others, to see others in a friendly way, from a friendly attitude. You know, we can, we can word it in a way, word it in a way that um, resonates with you. You know, maybe saying, seeing others as friends is, is a bit too much, a bit too touchy-feely for you, or, you know, just too much. So find, find the way, you know, seeing others as um, beings who are subject to causes and conditions, you know, that can, that can feel, you can be more relaxed with that maybe, less touchy-feely. <laughs> You know, so we can actually bring that intentionality even more, bring that into our practice even more, cultivate that way of looking even more. To see others, to see the conditioned nature, the complexity of the other. So when we see others as subject to causes and conditions, very important here, we see the other as subject to causes and conditions. And this other may be acting in ways that cause harm and pain, yeah, to myself or to others. So when we do this, it's not about um, supporting and it's not about justifying actions that cause harm and pain and suffering. It's not about that. It's about acknowledging the complexity of life, the complexity of all beings, and the acknowledgement that there's a difference between actions and essence. So the human being or the non-human being, they can be acting in ways that are harmful. But this does not define who they are. Not just that. Not just that. And I want to, I'll give an example. So this is something that um, I, um, I was part of in October. 
Um, we, we annually do a, a retreat called Being Peace in Israel and Palestine. There's quite a few people here who've been on it. And um, we spend uh, quite a fair amount of time in Palestine working with Palestinian farmers um, who have issues accessing their lands, their olive groves, uh, because of, of Jewish settlements um, and uh, government policies and um, military policies. And so in October, we, um, as part of the retreat, we'd been staying in a, in a Palestinian village, um, I think for at least a week by this point. And um, as part of the retreat, we, we, we arranged to um, go to the neighboring Jewish settlement and meet one of the settlers and listen to, um, to his take on the situation and on the relationship. And we had never met before. I'd only spoken to him on the phone a couple of times to arrange uh, the meeting. So it was quite a, quite a, um, a kind of a courageous um, undertaking on his behalf, you know, to meet with, I think there were 12 or 15 of us, Israelis and internationals. Um, and he was, his wife came, but she, she didn't want to speak. So it's quite a, you know, quite a courageous act in that way. Um, and he said right at the beginning, <laughs> he said, um, I don't know if this is going to be one monologue or two. <laughs> Meaning, you know, I don't know if I'm just going to be talking the whole time or we're just going to be talking at each other in two monologues that don't meet. Uh, we had quite a strong intention because this was, it's a retreat. So it is within a very tricky situation, but the intention is very strong to listen. To listen, you know, it's not about arguing, it's not about um, convincing the other. So there we were, our group, and um, Moshe, his name was, and, um, and he was, uh, what's the word? Emotional, he wouldn't have liked me saying that. Um, like highly charged, he was very highly charged. You know, he was speaking, he was um, sharing with us his view on, on the situation and the relationships in the area. Um, he'd lived there for quite a while, I think at least 15 years, but maybe longer, I don't remember. And um, he was very, very charged. And as he was speaking, he was getting more and more um, excited and his voice was getting louder and louder, and his body language was getting, you know, and he was, he, he actually looked like he was maybe gonna um, kind of combust at some, at some moment. And what I felt, and I could also feel from the rest of the group, I just felt immense compassion, actually, arising. Just immense compassion arising. It wasn't planned, it wasn't initiated, I didn't invite it. But I just felt immense compassion for his um, distress that was very, very apparent in that situation. And I actually even managed to stop him. It took a few tries and, and really ask him to take a few breaths because <laughs> I, was, I was really concerned that he would you know, cause his, his body some damage you know, from the level of kind of um, energy that was flowing through. And it was, uh, I think, a really um, deep teaching for, for all of us who were present there, you know, that you can, you know, listen to somebody, you can listen to somebody with empathy, even when you don't agree with a single word they're saying. Yeah? I'm, I'm not exaggerating, I think. And they're voicing views which are really difficult to hear really difficult to hear, and yet it's still possible to see the human being and to know that the human being is not just that moment, is not just that aspect, is not just those views. <coughs> to know that and just to feel these spontaneous arisings of compassion in that meeting. And 
some people in the group were able to, to ask some difficult questions. You know, so it's possible to also voice things from that place of compassion. Feel the compassion, feel the empathy without kind of crumbling, but being able to hold the space and to ask some difficult questions and to give the other person the possibility to respond or not, to respond in their way. But it it really is possible for us. It was very interesting that after the conversation ended, a few of the people in the group um, spoke to, to the wife and uh, she, she then, in a kind of more intimate situation, told us some of their personal history. And one of the things that really struck me and stayed with me was that he, this man, Moshe, he was born in 1946. He was born in 1946 in, uh, to um, Holocaust survivor, survivors in a refugee camp in Germany. And then his parents immigrated shortly after to, to Israel. And it really struck me, you know, it really, it still does actually. <laughs> right now when I'm saying it, it just kind of sends a chill down my body because that is, you know, the reality. Like he's carrying some kind of really strong conditioning of suffering. And we can be really clear that you know, we don't accept that that conditioning is leading now to more suffering of others. But we can also see with compassion and with empathy and remember that whatever we're seeing is not the totality. It's not the totality of who someone is. <coughs> One friend who's... Um, who came on the, the same retreat being peace the previous year to, to, to this one that I'm talking about. Um, she was so um, struck by her own um, anger at Israelis and the way her being was reacting to the situation by making Israelis the other, the other that she um, decided the next year to come again But instead of just coming for the two weeks of the retreat, she came for two months. And she spent most of those two months in Israel with the intention to meet, to know, to get into contact with more than just that aspect. And it brought up incredible challenges for her. You know, she wrote a beautiful blog of this experience. A lot of challenges. It's one question that has come up on that retreat over the years. What do you do when you actually really like someone who you deeply disagree with? You you feel their choices, their actions are causing a lot of suffering. You deeply disagree with them, but you actually really like them. And you also feel that you have a lot in common. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it easy. But when we can work with the cheetah, when we can work with our being to increase the equanimity, increase the space, to meet these challenges, you know, to include more of life, to include complexity, to include contradiction, what does it do? in the being? How does that change our relationship with ourselves? How does that change our relationship with people we love? You know, it's all the same thing. Yeah, it's all the same thing. All these relationships. So when we practice in this way, you know, when we really prioritize practices of seeing clearly and of cultivating nourishing qualities like metta, joy, compassion, equanimity, prioritize that. We have so much more resources 
to open to life, to deal with life, to contain life. And we also have the kind of added benefit that these qualities, as we practice them, they arise more and more naturally in the citta. Yeah? They become more accessible. They naturally, the citta dwells in them more and more. And of course, this is a further benefit. Yeah? It's a benefit for ourselves because we're struggling with experience a lot less. And it's of incredible benefit of everyone around us. <laughs> incredible benefit for everyone around us, everyone that we come into contact with. And so the more clear seeing, the more wisdom, the more possibilities for metta, for joy, for compassion, for equanimity to be seen, to, to be cultivated, to be nourished and to arise. And the more welcoming we are towards our experience, the more calm there is, the more clear seeing there is, the more wisdom. So all of these are nourishing each other. It's like cycles that feed each other. I thought it was going to be a short talk. Just looked at my watch. So the cycle feeds itself, feeds itself. The wisdom, the calm feed each other. They feed um, nourishing qualities of heart and being. And the more insight we have and the more access we have to to these nourishing qualities in us, the more malleable our perception becomes. So it's, it's constantly these cycles are feeding each other. Yeah, just like with the example that I gave with the aversion towards the beginning, the more access I have to calmness, to wisdom, to metta as a resource, when I see aversion, I don't get hooked. I don't get hooked by it. I can actually then um, affect perception by bringing in these qualities into the citta. There's a beautiful um, story from from Ram Das about about this kind of thing. Um, Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, So this is a story of of Ram Das. um, He was going to a family dinner at his parents' house. Joe is smiling because he knows the story. (laughs) who is going to a family dinner at his parents' house. And um, I don't remember if it was intentional or not, but he took some LSD or some other hallucinogenic thing just before. (laughs) And uh, so there he is. He's sitting at dinner. And um, his brother is sitting across from him. And, you know, the family's there and the family dynamic is going on. Um, and, and he's just noticing as he and his brother are conversing, you know, his brother is, is saying something to him. And uh, I, I'm totally making this part up of what his brother actually said because I can't remember. But, you know, his brother says something like, you know, shouldn't you, you know, shouldn't you get a haircut? You know, how come they let you into Harvard, you know, these days looking like a hippie or whatever? And what Ramdas is experiencing is not so much the words, but he sees like an arrow flying from his brother's mouth (laughs) towards him. And so he's seeing this arrow going towards him and coming, you know, directly towards his heart. And then he's resting into this space. He's resting into the space of, of love, yeah, of metta, of equanimity. He's not taking it personally. And so he says back to his brother, doesn't your wife look wonderful today? And he sees a heart going from his mouth. It's a great story. Going from his mouth and meeting the arrow, meeting the arrow on the way. And they both go poof and disappear. And the whole conversation kind of, the conversation carries on like this. And he sees the arrows coming his way. 
And, you know, this is a family dynamic. We know how intense those are. You know, years and years of this dynamic. And yet in this other state of the chitta, resting into metta, resting into equanimity, resting into compassion, resting into seeing the conditionality, you know, not taking it personally, he's able to respond with a heart. And by the end of that dinner, I can't remember exactly, he describes it really beautifully, but by the end of, of the dinner, it's like a different family, you know? I think the, the brother is hugging his wife, and, you know, the parents are patting Ramdas's hand or whatever, you know? It's, it's like a different family. It has such an impact. has such an impact. And in my experience, you know, I, I, I'm, I've never been into drugs, so I can't speak too much about that aspect of it. But I think if you're willing to let go of the actual psychedelic thing of seeing the arrows and, and the hearts, um, it's possible to do by just cultivating these attitudes and these practices that we're emphasizing here. It's to really be able to bring that. To really be able to bring that. And sometimes it will cause, you know, it will bring about the kind of transformation that Ram Das is talking about. And, and sometimes it might not. But in every case, it, it's worthwhile because it, it still protects our heart. Yeah? The arrows, they're not getting. They're not getting here. They're not getting here. They're not causing harm. And that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. So, in some way, this kind of way I'm speaking about practice today, it, maybe you're, you're feeling it, it has quite an engaged quality to it. It has quite an engaged quality to it. You know, it's not passive. <coughs> it's not controlling. But it's engaged. It's about cultivating what we know is wholesome. You know, doing the work. Putting in the hours as you've been doing, you know, it's not, it's not um, all fun as we know. But doing the work, being engaged, seeing the moments when we see the fruits and letting ourselves rejoice and appreciate those because that feeds our practice further. And that kind of balance of being engaged, being willing, bringing tension, being willing to make mistakes, to fall on our face, to fail some of the time, without also losing the qualities of receptivity, of listening, of opening to ourselves, to life, to each other. That's a balance which, for me, is, is one way of looking at the middle way. Christopher was speaking um, yesterday about all these polarities that, that we get with views, and particularly in, in spiritual scenes. And one of them is that polarity between being and doing. You know, some voices are saying, no, no, doing is wrong <laughs> in spiritual practice. You know, just be, just be, just be. And then the opposite view, which is very much about striving. You know, you need to work, you need to suffer, you need to feel the pain. You know, and just to see, there are two extremes. There are two extremes. And actually, the middle way is some kind of very dynamic, <clears throat> very alive process that isn't black and white. It's not in the extremes, as Christopher was saying yesterday. Not in the extremes. I think no one puts this better than uh, Milarepa, the very beloved Tibetan um, sage of, I really always forget dates, I don't know how many centuries ago. But he used to urge his disciples, urge his disciples to hasten slowly on the path. Yeah, I just love it. And I'll say it again, and I'll also say it in an easier word for me. So he used to urge 
his disciples, to hasten slowly on the path. So hasten means to go fast. So he used to say, go fast, slowly, on the path. So really bringing together, this is the middle way of, of effort, to bring ourselves, to have that willingness, to have that dedication, to have that commitment, and at the same time, to be open, receptive, to let go of too much control. And it's really, it's a dynamic. It's not a kind of prescriptive set recipe. You know, just this. It's a dynamic. Keeps changing. It's alive. So I'd just like to end with, um, with a story. And um, this is also from the, the retreat in the leprosy community that ended um, just over a week ago. And so this was um, on our final work day of the work retreat. Uh, one of the people on the retreat was in the old people's home. And she found um, one of the, of the old, old men who was already, um, he'd already, his condition had really um, deteriorated. Uh, he was very, very confused and no longer able to stand up. Um, and he was, and he's, he's been blind for many years. Um, so he wasn't able to stand, so he was shuffling on the floor from place to place, which resulted in quite a lot of, of injuries to his hands and feet. Um, and, and, and she found him and he had deteriorated even more. So he was kind of, he was wet and he was um, dirty um, and he was confused, and she, um, you know, she brought him to his bed, and she got some dry clothes, um, and, and she told, this was in the morning, she told us. And so um, that afternoon, I, I went back with some of the other um, volunteers from the group, and um, they, they were, um, their usual job in the afternoon was to take people on wheelchair, dri- uh, wheelchair rides from the old people's home. So it wasn't kind of an intensive care, it was more um, taking people out on a wheelchair um, to, to go around a little bit, get some fresh air, go see some flowers, and then have a cup of tea um, at the chai shop. Um, but when I spoke to them um, at lunch, they, they said no, you know, and I asked if they were willing to come with me to, 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 to see what was needed with, with this um, beautiful man, his name is Danu. Um, they were really willing to do it. So we came, and... Um, We, we found ourselves, as, as happens in these situations, actually needing to do a lot more than we thought we would, um, to actually really give him a complete bath and um, find clean clothes and change him into clean clothes and um, clean his bed. And so, so we did all of that. And um, at the end of it, he was sitting on his bed um, with um, one of the volunteers, and she had her arm around him. She was feeding him some sweets that she'd brought to, to share with, with all the, the old men that day. She was feeding him the sweets. It was a very, very beautiful picture. And uh, later when she spoke about the experience, this is what I want to share, later when she spoke about the experience, um, she spoke about, you know, really not expecting, you know, she'd said yes, but she really hadn't expected um, that she would kind of, you know, be cleaning poo and urine um, and coming into contact with someone's naked body in that way. Um, and she said, you know, if I had imagined that, I probably would have thought I couldn't do it. And yet in the moment, it was completely natural, completely possible, and such a great um, sense of honor and blessing and privilege to be able to do that for someone else. And during the work retreat, she had been working, um, you know, in the kitchen and doing the wheelchair rides because she'd felt that she, she couldn't quite handle the more difficult aspects of, of some of the work that's possible to do there. And after this experience, um, she said, you know, I was really surprised by myself and I, I, I'm kind of really blown away by how much my heart has opened, 
how much my heart has opened. And uh, I really wish there was more days. <laughs> I really wish there was more days. And she said, you know, and I'm definitely coming, next, coming back next year <laughs> to, to do more of that, to do more of that, more of, of the kind of more intimate, more hands-on, more intense. So that readiness in the being, when we spend time, you know, cultivating, in this case, you know, almost a month of cultivating presence, calmness, understanding, compassion, intentionality. And then there's that readiness that when the opportunity arises, the action is very natural. The ability to respond is very natural. So that was the last (coughs) full day of the retreat. And then there was the closing day. The day after that, Nathan and I, the group left, Nathan and I, um, went back to the old people's home for various things, and amongst them checking on, on Danu. And we arrived at three. And when we arrived uh, at the old people's home, the first thing people were told us was Danu died an hour ago. And we went to, to look at his body as they were preparing um, the body. And it was just, it felt like such an incredible gift to know that some of his last um, moment, some of his last contact had been with that care and love and attention. It just felt like, wow, just knowing that. And that we, you know, in very, in small ways, you know, just a few, a couple of hours of his life, you know, but how present was that with him in the last days? You know, how present was that in that really intense situation of suffering, physical and mental. How present was that? So, that willingness and that engagement in the practice, you know, I, I think I said this on the first night, in the practice we do, this, this is an, an engaged practice. Engaged practice. We're sitting here on the cushion and practicing similar, you know, seemingly alone, yeah? Simi- seemingly just within our own mind and body, seemingly, you know, separate. But this is an engaged practice. It readies us, it prepares us, it strengthens us to respond, to respond to life. So this is love as the middle way. You know, the love that is in the practice, that love that we can have for the practice. Love as the middle way, the love that keeps us centered and available. Available. To the unfolding, the unknown, and the complex that is life. And that is our path. So let's just have a, a quiet moment together to close. May we continue to find inspiration, willingness, and energy to open to life, to engage with life, to cultivate and nourish the wholesome and the skillful in ourselves so that we can live 
in the service of love, in the service of compassion, in the service of wisdom. For the benefit of ourselves and of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your listening. <laughs>